Thank you so much, praise team. And thank you for joining together and singing those glorious songs, those incredible lyrics to the Father in worship. Worship is not over. We're continuing in worship as we turn now to his word. And we get to hear revelation from this God that we just sang to. Speak to us now. He's about to speak to his bride in his word. So if you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, turn to Genesis chapter 18. Last week, after having been out of Genesis for a couple of months, we did a, a, a bit of a review for the first 18 chapters to kind of bring us up to speed. And this morning, we're going to get back into the weeds and look at the first 15 verses of chapter 18. As we said last week, these two chapters go together. They really are a unit. And part of why they're a unit is because the three visitors that will present themselves to Abraham in this story this morning stick with Abraham through most of these two chapters. There are two overarching themes in these two chapters that we'll see over and over again. One is intimacy with God, an intimate fellowship with the God of the universe, and second of all, judgment of sin. We're going to see the former intimacy with God, fellowship with God, primarily in chapter 18 as we look at this morning's passage that deals with this fellowship meal that the Lord has with Abraham at his tent. And then next week as we see this this intimate conversation that takes place between Abraham and God. And then we'll see the latter of those two themes, namely judgment of sin in chapter 19, as we look at the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and the behavior of Lot's two daughters. So let's be on the lookout for those two themes, intimacy with God and judgment of sin, as we dive into this morning's passage, first 15 verses of chapter 18 of Genesis. This is the word of God. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it. And make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years, and the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? And say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the privilege of knowing you as Father. Father, as we consider this setting where you appeared to Abraham, your servant, and engaged in intimate fellowship with him, we are reminded of the lengths to which you went 
to engage in intimate fellowship with us through your son Christ. We we pray, Father, that this morning you would speak to us from your word. We thank you so much for this book. We thank you for the gift that it is to us. What a blessing it is to know that this is your breath given to us to reveal yourself to us and, and to reveal who we are in light of you. Father, we don't want to just be smarter about it. We don't want just to understand it better intellectually. We want to be changed by it. For that's why you gave it to us. Not just so that we would have greater head knowledge, but so that we might be transformed, conformed to the image of your Son. And so, God, we ask in faith this morning that you would, just, that you, that you would do just that. God, I ask that you would do that in my heart and life this morning. And I ask that for my brothers and sisters who are here. God, that you would make us look more like Jesus for your glory this morning. Simply by being exposed to the truth and reality that we see in your word. And Father, we pray for those who are among us who don't know you as Father. Father, maybe they're here and they're investigating the claims of Christ. Maybe they're here and someone just encouraged them to come. Maybe they feel guilty about something. They're wanting to try to get something right. God, we pray that you would cause your good news to become crystal clear to them. We ask that you would give them to faith, to trust in Jesus Christ alone. and Enter into relationship with you so that you might forgive them, give them the hope of heaven, the hope of eternity, and that you might restore them into right relationship with you that you so desire and that we see portrayed in this passage. So that's our request of you this morning, Father. We lay ourselves bare before you, knowing that we can't change ourselves, and we're asking you to change us to look more like him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's two sections, really, to these first 15 verses. First of all, there's the fellowship meal that Abraham prepares for these three visitors. And then there is the divine revelation to Sarah that she's going to give birth to a son whose name is Isaac. And so immediately we encounter one of those themes that we talked about. Intimacy with God, an intimate fellowship with the Lord of all creation. Three times in Scripture, Abraham is referred to as a friend of God. Nobody else in all of Scripture is referred as such. Uh, We're told that that the Lord spoke with Moses as as a uh, someone speaks to a friend, but, but Mo- Abraham's the only one who's referred to as a friend of God twice in the Old Testament and once by Jesus' half-brother, James. In James chapter 2, verse 23, he says, And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he, Abraham, was called a friend of God. And Abraham's friendship with God is on display here. In this passage, look at verses 1 and 2. It says, And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, and he bowed himself down to the earth. The Lord appeared to Abraham. Let's not Take that for granted. The Lord had spoken to Abraham many times thus far, from chapter 12 up to where we are, and he will continue to. There's only three times, this is the third of only three times that that he appears to Abraham. He he physically manifests himself in a a theophany, in some way he, he appears to Abraham, even though Abraham doesn't recognize him as such yet. The Lord appears to him. God desires fellowship with Abraham, and so he draws near to him. 
And what we learn at the outset here is that God is the one who initiates this intimate fellowship with Abraham. And Abraham responds. God initiates fellowship with us, and we are the ones who respond to him. Intimacy or or closeness in any relationship requires both parties to pursue it. One person typically initiates it, and the other responds. And both of those components are necessary, and one without the other just won't cut it. What we see in this passage is that God initiates this fellowship and Abraham responds to it. So it is God who takes the initiative to have intimate fellowship with us. God does this with Abraham and God has done this with us in Christ. He has tabernacled among us, Scripture says. He he. The the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He he became one of us and lived with us, and he promises to never leave us. We who were dead in our trespasses and sins and under the righteous wrath of God because of our sins, we didn't initiate fellowship with God. God initiated it with us while we were still in our sins. While we were still in our sins, Jesus came near to us and tabernacled among us, and he lived a perfect life for us, and then he died in our place on the cross to rescue us from what we deserve, to restore us, and to return us to a right relationship with God. He initiated it, and we respond to him in faith. And by the way, if you're here this morning and you You have not come to faith in Christ. You're here and you're simply investigating the claims of Christ. Maybe you're checking out what Christianity is all about. If you're far from God this morning, the good news is that Jesus has initiated this kind of fellowship with you. Just by being here this morning, you should recognize that God is the one who got you here. And he has you here within the hearing of the good news of Christ, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, so that he might have this intimate fellowship with you. But even if you know Christ by faith and your relationship with him is already secure, still sometimes our fellowship with him or the quality or the depth of our relationship with him sometimes suffers And most times, it suffers because of sin, because of sin that resides in us, in our lives. In Revelation chapter 3, in his letter to the church at Laodicea, Jesus rebukes the people of that church, which, by the way, was a very wealthy and prosperous church. And Jesus rebukes them because of their lukewarm faith. Because in their prosperity, in their wealth materialistically, the Laodiceans had forgotten that without God, they were wretches, they were pitiable, they were poor, they were blind, and they were naked. And so Jesus says to them and exhorts them to see that and to zealously look to him for for contentment and for faith. And he says to them in Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. He says this to the church. This is not an evangelistic appeal. This is is not an appeal to come to faith in Christ. This is an appeal on the part of Jesus Christ to those in the church at Laodicea to enter into a deeper, more intimate fellowship with him which is what he desires as well. So in our fight against that kind of spiritual malaise, that kind of spiritual lethargy or lukewarmness that so often accompanies those who have their worldly needs met, the church that is wealthy and prosperous, which by the way is a pretty good description of the American church today. According to 
global rich list, an annual household income of just $32,400, which I would imagine that most of us in this church would be at that kind of household income. But a household income of just $32,400 places you in the top 1% of the wealthiest people in the world. And with this kind of wealth and prosperity often comes a spiritual malaise, a spiritual lethargy or lukewarmness that the Laodiceans were guilty of because they trusted in their wealth and they trusted in their abilities and their capabilities so much so that they didn't see their utter dependence on God for everything. So in our fight against that, in our fight against that kind of lukewarmness and, and spiritual lethargy that we're tended to, we're reminded that Jesus is already knocking at the door. And he's knocking there to enter into a deeper level of intimacy with you and I. And so our response to that is the response that Jesus exhorted the church at Laodicea, and that is to repent, to repent of that lukewarmness, to repent that we're not we don't have a white-hot passion to grow deeper in a walk with him and then open that door and enter into that deeper fellowship with the Lord. So the Lord initiates this kind of intimacy and fellowship with Abraham, and Abraham responds to that. And he responds here in this passage with a picture of hospitality. And so we can look at Abraham's hospitality in, on two levels. On one level, his hospitality is presented to us as an example for us to emulate, for us to follow, that we're to have the same kind of hospitality to others in our lives. But on another level, on a deeper level, though at this point in the story, he doesn't yet know, Abraham doesn't yet know that it is the Lord that he's showing hospitality to. So on that deeper level, what this is, is Abraham responding faithfully to the call to go deeper in his walk, and his fellowship with the Lord. So we see a model of hospitality here. And we know that in Scripture, all throughout Scripture, we're exhorted to show hospitality. Let me give you seven places from the New Testament just as a, a brief example of this. In Third John, uh, in his third epistle, John commends Gaius, who is the person that he's writing this letter to, he commends Gaius for opening up his home to those who come in the name of the Lord to encourage those who are in the church with him. He commends him for opening up his home that they would stay with him. In his first epistle, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 17, he says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? And that's a rhetorical question, isn't it? And the assumed answer is it doesn't. The principle there is that if we see a need and the Lord has given us the ability to meet that need and we turn a blind eye to that, then how can God's love abide in us? It's a warning against a lack of hospitality. In Titus chapter 1 and 1 Timothy chapter 3, as Paul is giving the qualifications for those who would serve as elders in the New Testament church, one of those is that he must be hospitable, showing hospitality. And that's not just for elders. We know that with all of those qualifications for an elder, it's not just for those who are elders. Those are all qualities that we should all be seeking to develop in ourselves, to be hospitable. Twice in Matthew's gospel, Jesus commends showing hospitality to strangers. One is in Matthew chapter 10 when he commissions the 12 and he sends out the 12 to, to preach about the kingdom of heaven. He tells them to look for a person of peace in the towns that they go, go to. Look for a place of hospitality and then let that place be your base of operations as you're in that town preaching about the kingdom. And then he warns that if a town will not receive you or listen to you, which apparently are two aspects of hospitality, receiving strangers and listening to them, spending time with them. Jesus warns that if, if you go to a town and they will not receive you or if, if they will not listen to you, then when you leave that town, shake the dust off of your feet. And he warns in verse 15 of Matthew 10, that it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah 
than for that town, which carries deeper meaning in the passage that we're in on the cusp of seeing the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. That a town that doesn't show hospitality is even worse than that. At the end of that passage, as he concludes his instructions to the 12 that he sends out, he says this, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water in my name because he's one of my disciples, truly I say to you, he will by by no means lose his reward. Then in Matthew chapter 25, in the the Olivet Discourse, as Jesus is talking about the judgment to come, that's going to come at the end, Jesus says, at that point, I will gather the nations to myself, and I will separate the sheep from the goats. And he says, I'll look at the sheep, those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. I will look at them, and I will say to them, I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me in. I, I was in prison and I was sick and you, and you visited me. I, I was naked and you clothed me. And, and the sheep will say, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you? When, when, when did we ever see you thirsty and give you drink? And what does Jesus say? Just as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And then he'll look at the goats, those who didn't come to faith in Christ, and he'll say, I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me drink. I I was a stranger and you didn't welcome me and so forth. And they too will complain, but we never saw you hungry. We never saw you thirsty. We never saw you as a stranger. And Jesus will say to them, just as you didn't do it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you didn't do it to me. So Matthew records these two instances where, where Jesus himself clearly and vividly commends demonstrating this kind of hospitality to strangers. Dr. Luke also records a similar commendation from Jesus when Jesus shares in Luke chapter 10 the parable of the Good Samaritan. And we know that parable, it's familiar to many of us, and in that parable we learn that we should show hospitality not just to those who come in the name of the Lord and not just to those who are strangers, but even to those who might be characterized as our enemies. To even show hospitality to them. And of course, we can't forget the exhortation from Hebrews chapter 13. Right after he says in verse 1 that we ought to persist and pursue in, in brotherly love for one another, he says in verse 2, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. And I would imagine that the writer of Hebrews was thinking of the story of Abraham when he wrote that. Because that's precisely what Abraham is doing. He is literally entertaining angels unawares. He's not aware that this is the Lord and two angels. He, he just thinks that they are three strangers, three men that happen upon his tent. So hospitality is not just some kind of common courtesy that, that is in accordance with our culture's standards. Much more than that, is it's, it's something that we're commanded to. It's something that is expected of those who are disciples of Jesus. But what does it look like to show hospitality? What are the qualities of hospitality that we see in Abraham, the story about Abraham here? Uh, Andrew Davis um, notes that there are five qualities of Abraham's hospitality in this story. And the first is eagerness. We see that he runs to them. He he runs out to me. He hurries out to meet them. He's ready and eager to serve. And we should probably write out next to the word eagerness, the word margin. Because not only is Abraham eager to serve these strangers, but he's got margin in his life to do so. I think this is where many of us in our culture get tripped up. We're so busy that we don't have time to show hospitality to anyone in our life. We don't have margin in our lives to do this. And perhaps it's because we're too busy. Perhaps it's because we need to reevaluate where we spend our time and our energies and our efforts so that we will have time and energy to devote to showing hospitality. Because again, we may be entertaining angels unawares. Or even the Lord. Secondly, we see humility in his hospitality. We're told that Abraham 
bowed down to the earth. He, he bowed down low. He humbled himself. Even though he didn't even know who they were, to him, they were strangers. Even though Abraham, in verse 3, he calls one of them Lord. If you look at that word, it's in the lowercase, it's got lowercase letters. That's a different word than we see in verse 1. If you look at verse 1, more than likely your English translations will put that in capital letters. It's because it's two different words in Hebrew. In verse 1, those capital letters mean that the Hebrew word there is what Bible scholars call the tetragrammaton. The, the, the four letters, the personal name for God, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. But in verse 3, when Abraham calls one of them my Lord, it is lowercase. It's a different word. It's Adon, where we get Adonai. Sometimes it refers to God. But most often, it's, it's more of a generic term that simply means master and was a recognition of authority. It refers to anyone who is over you. And so there's no indication here that, that Abraham thought that these were anything other than just three strangers that come to him, three men that show up at his doorstep. And so we see great humility on his part as he elevates a seemingly unknown nobody, a stranger, to a place of greater importance and authority over him. And he refers to himself twice here as a servant. I am your servant. It's one thing if he knew it was the Lord and he calls himself a servant, but this is a stranger. He says, I'm your servant, and you are my Lord, my master. It takes great humility to display this kind of hospitality to others. Hospitality means putting a towel over my arm and humbling myself so that I might serve those that the Lord gives me opportunity to do so too. Abraham's hospitality was also characterized, thirdly, by graciousness. Look at verses 3 through 5. Abraham said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant." When he says, don't, don't, don't pass by your servant, it's almost like he's like, give me a chance to serve you. It's almost, they're doing him an honor to allow him the privilege of serving them. I don't have that kind of mindset. Would that God would develop that in me and in us to consider it a privilege. So often, admittedly, I consider it a distraction from what I want to spend my time doing but not for Abraham for Abraham don't don't pass by give me a chance to serve you give me a chance to honor you in this way there's there's no reluctance or grumbling on Abraham's part we remember that in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 verse 7 Paul exhorts us when we're giving to not give reluctantly but to give cheerfully and 1 Peter Verse four, chapter 4, verse 9 says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. See, it's one thing to show hospitality. It's another thing to show hospitality without grumbling. And we don't see any reluctance on Abraham's part. We don't see any grumbling on his part whatsoever. It was an honor for him to serve them because he was a gracious host. Fourthly, he, sh he displays compassion here. He considers their needs. They're tired. It's in the heat of the day, it says, and so he wants them to rest their feet. He wants them to, to have their feet washed. And aren't we reminded that Jesus washes the feet of his disciples? Here he wants them to rest their feet. He wants them to have something to drink because they're thirsty, they're hungry. So he considers their needs and he seeks to meet their needs. And then fifth and finally, his hospitality displays generosity. Look at verses six through eight. Here the visitors... Now accept Abraham's offer of a fellowship meal. And they say to him, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. 
Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. So this was no mere snack that Abraham just threw together. This was a grand feast. Uh, consider the, the, the flour. A, a sea of flour was between one and a half and two gallons of flour. And this is three seahs. So this would be the equivalent of like five gallons of flour. It's just three guys. He's making a ton of bread. This is not just a few pancakes that he's whipping up real quickly. He's preparing a grand feast. Think, think of the time that would have been involved in preparing this extravagant feast for them. Not just the bread, but, but the calf. That, that, was, that was overboard for three guests, for three strangers. A goat, a lamb would have done, but this is a calf. He has the entire calf prepared, and he brings the meat to them. This isn't Abraham throwing something in the microwave and zapping something quickly for them. This is a grand feast that takes time. We're often in too big of a rush to show this kind of hospitality to others. So Abraham showed great hospitality to these strangers, not not knowing that two of them were angels and one of them was the Lord. But as I look over that list of the qualities of Abraham's hospitality that he showed to these three, I'm struck by the fact that the Lord Jesus has displayed this kind of hospitality to us. He was eager to come to earth. He was eager to become one of us. And go to the cross and die for us to rescue us. He showed great humility, as Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2. He shows great humility in becoming a servant and becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross for us. He was incredibly gracious to us, giving us what we did not deserve in the least without the smallest hint of reluctance on his part. He showed great compassion for us because we were sheep without a shepherd. We were sinners without hope. So he was compassionate to us. He knew our greatest need and he sought to meet it. And he was unbelievably generous to us, giving up his life for our own, dying so that we might live. God was and still is each and every day hospitable to us beyond measure and we reflect that hospitality of God to us when we show hospitality to others church we reflect that in the heart of God when we show hospitality to others we see here that hospitality sets the table for intimacy hospitality makes room for intimate fellowship to occur and the Lord initiated this. The Lord initiates the intimacy by coming to Abraham just as he has come to us in Christ. And then Abraham responded to that by showing hospitality to them even though he doesn't know that it's the Lord who was visiting them. And this hospitality sets the table now for this fellowship meal as, as we see in verse 8. He took all this stuff and he set it before them. At the end of verse 8 it says, And he, Abraham, he stood by them under the tree while they ate. What a picture of fellowship with Abraham. Our God desires to have this kind of fellowship with us. But there's a barrier that stands in the way, and that barrier is sin. Our sin. So he wants to remove that barrier so that he can recline at table with us and fellowship with us. And what we have in the Old Testament are all these pictures through the animal sacrifices and how their blood is sprinkled on the altar and sprinkled on the people, all to symbolize that the sin must be covered. The sin must be dealt with. It must be atoned for if God is to be with man because that's what God desires, intimate fellowship with the pinnacle of his creation, mankind. In Exodus chapter 24, Moses 
takes the blood of the animals and he throws it on the altar and he throws it on the people. And only then can the 70 elders of Israel ascend to the mountain and break bread with the Lord and sit down and recline at table with the Lord. David says in Psalm 23, it's very familiar to us, you prepare a table before me, a table in the presence of my enemies, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God and man at table with one another in fellowship. It's what God wants. In Matthew chapter 8, Jesus paints a picture of eternity in heaven. And the picture looks like a grand feast that is happening. And Jesus says many will come from the east and the west to recline at table with me and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the patriarchs. It's a picture of a, of a grand feast that's occurring with the patriarchs and with, God's, with Christ's disciples. That's a picture of what we have to look forward to. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a great banquet for his son. That's, that's one of the pictures that Jesus paints of heaven. And then, of course, in Revelation 19, we have that picture of the final wedding banquet, the wedding feast of the Lamb that we have to look forward to in the end. Our God desires this kind of fellowship with his children. And although the barrier of our sin prevents us from fellowship with him, Jesus has done everything necessary to remove that barrier so that our God can have intimate fellowship with us that he so desires. But we still live in a world of sin. And our sinful flesh, even as believers in Christ, sometimes will cause us to gravitate away from God in this life. And so we have this beautiful promise in Scripture of the day that is coming when we will recline at table with the Lord at the great wedding feast of the Lamb and enjoy perfect fellowship with Him, unhindered by the presence and the distraction of sin. And so the hospitality of Abraham here in response to God's initiative, sets the table for the fellowship meal. And then it's in the course of this fellowship meal that this personal revelation now occurs to Sarah in verses 9 through 15. And this too has relevance to the idea of intimate fellowship with the Lord. Because revealing thoughts, revealing plans, revealing hearts is is essential for intimacy. Think about marriage. If a husband and wife are going to have intimate fellowship with one another in their marriage, they have to share knowledge. They have to share their plans. They have to share their hearts, lay their hearts open to one another. That's essential to intimate fellowship. This is what Jesus is referring to in, in John chapter 15, verse 15, when he said, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. In other words, the, the, the level of intimacy grows in conjunction with the level of revelation that occurs. Jesus says, I'm going to share my plans with you, and that's because that's what I do with friends. I, I have intimate fellowship with you, and so I'm going to reveal everything that the Father has revealed to me. I'm going to reveal to you. And that's what the Lord begins to do in this setting with Abraham and Sarah here. He begins to reveal more and more of his plans of redemption. Now, as we've seen from chapter 12 of Genesis on, God's revelation of his plans for redeeming lost mankind have been gradually unfolding for Abraham and Sarah. It started out with, leave your homeland, leave Ur, and go to a land that I will show you once you get there. Not very specific. And then when they got there, he said, this is it. This is the land. And then after coming back from Egypt, after they fled to Egypt, he, he leads Abraham. He says, he says, walk the length and the breadth of this land. He shows 
Abraham the extent of that land, further unfolding of this plan. And then in chapter 15, he, he leads Abraham outside at night and he says, look at the stars. Your descendants will be as numerous as the stars of the sky. In chapter 17, he was given the, the covenant sign of circumcision. And now, here in chapter 18, God's plan of redemption is being further unfolded for Abraham and Sarah. Now he's given the timing of when this will happen. He says it's going to be about this time next year. Look at verse 9 and 10. They said to him, where, where is Sarah, your wife? And Abraham said, well, she's in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Now, I think this is probably where Abraham begins to get a sense that maybe this is more than just a guy, right? This is divine revelation of some sort. How does, how does he know his wife's name? How does, how does he know about the promise of a child to this couple who are well beyond childbearing years? And beyond that, that it's going to be a son. And now he even knows when it's going to happen, about this time next year. But not only does the Lord reveal knowledge about the future to them and timing about when this is going to happen, but he also reveals knowledge about Sarah's heart. Look at verse 10 and following. The end of verse 10 says, And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. And so this visitor who's speaking can't see Sarah, can't, can't see Sarah's reaction. And verse 11 says, Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, Shall I have pleasure? Again, the visitor can't see her, can't hear her. And even if he could, it says that Abraham laughed to herself and, and thought these things to herself. These were, these were thoughts in her mind. They weren't out loud. So he didn't hear this. He didn't see her. But yet the Lord discerns her thoughts anyways. It says in verse 13 through 15, it said to, said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And then he repeats the promise at the appointed time. I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, But no, you did laugh. The Lord knows her thoughts just as he knows yours and mine. As the psalmist says in Psalm 94, verse 11, the Lord knows the thoughts of man. And not only does he know her thoughts, he discerns her inward laughter. In chapter 17, we saw Abraham laughed when he was told that he was going to have a son. But we saw there it was the, it was the laugh of amazement, of, of astonishment. Could this really be true? But we're presented this by Moses as, from Sarah as the laughter of unbelief. It's a kind of mocking laughter of unbelief. I'm old. I am worn out. I am well beyond the years of childbearing. This isn't even a part of our relationship anymore. And she laughs, a mocking laugh of unbelief. And God confronts her about it. But I think it's, parenthetically, it's interesting to note that he confronts Abraham about her wife's sin, which reinforces for us the, the husband's role as the spiritual head of the home, the one that God will hold responsible and accountable for the spiritual vitality of those in the household. But through Abraham, God confronts Sarah about her laughter. And then he asks, is, is anything impossible God, which is a rhetorical question again, and the assumed answer is, no, of course not. Nothing's impossible for God. Nothing's too hard for God. And we should understand and remind ourselves that this is God, sovereign of the universe, 
holy and completely omniscient, knowing everything that has happened and will happen. And so not only does he know Abraham's wife's name, not only does he know that she's going to have a son and the timing of that birth, and not only does he know that Sarah laughs, but he knows that she's going to laugh in this setting. So the Lord is orchestrating this setting, not just to reveal something to Sarah. You're going to have a son about this time next year. But he's orchestrating this setting also to reveal something to her about her heart. That there resides in her heart an element of unbelief, a lack of faith, a lack of trusting in God. And on top of that, denial of that unbelief. Because when she's confronted, what does she say? Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And the Lord says to her, but no, you did laugh. It is gracious of God here to use this setting of fellowship with him to shine the light of conviction on sin in Sarah's heart. And church, God does that for us. And it is gracious of God to use our times of fellowship with him to address the sin that still resides in us. Why? Because he wants to remove it so that he will enjoy the intimacy of our fellowship with him and that it will be that much sweeter. He knows you and I need it. And so he will use circumstances and especially times of fellowship with him to shine the light of conviction on the sin that resides in our heart and the deep recesses of our heart so that we might confess it and repent of it and turn away from it so that we might enjoy deeper and sweeter and more intimate fellowship with our God. So as we wrap this up, I wonder what is the level of your intimacy in your fellowship with God. If you come to faith in Jesus Christ, he initiated that relationship. He initiated that fellowship with him. And he brought you to faith in him. But he did this so that you might know him and know him more. He did this so that you might love him and love him more. He did this so that you might glorify him with your lives and more so as you continue to grow in your walk with him. He desires intimate fellowship with you. So what is the level of intimacy in your fellowship with Christ? What sin still indwells you that might be standing in the way of deeper, more intimate fellowship with God? Like Sarah, is it maybe the sin of unbelief in some way? Is it the sin of a lack of faith? That he's asking you to step out in faith and trust him in some way. Are you doubting, perhaps, that nothing is too hard for God? Or are there other sins that reside in you and in your life that are eating away at an intimate fellowship with God? Whatever those barriers are, whatever sin remains, the overwhelming exhortation from Scripture, including today's passage, is to repent of that, to turn away from that, to confess that and agree with God that it's there and it's not becoming a follower of Christ. And so I would exhort you on behalf of God's Word, repent. Confess that. Turn away from that. And believe God again that He can do anything and will restore to you that intimate fellowship that he desires from you. The reality is we're going to struggle with this our whole lives. 
while we're on this earth, until he brings us home, until he brings us home where we will recline at table with him and we will sup with him away from the presence and the distraction of sin and that fellowship will be perfect. Let's pray. If you have never professed faith in Jesus Christ, I want to make sure that in the quietness of the next few moments you realize and recognize that what this passage of Scripture is not saying to you is that you are already a friend of God. Scripture says because of your sin, you are, as we all once were, an enemy of God. At enmity with the Creator. And there's nothing you can do to change that. But I believe that God has you here within the sound of the gospel to hear the good news that Jesus paid the price for your sin completely, wholly. And I call on you on behalf of God to trust in Christ, to place your faith in Him so that he might forgive you and give you new life and restore you to a right relationship with him so that he might have the kind of fellowship that he desires from you. God, we stand before you. We, we kneel before you in our hearts and minds right now because we know that you deserve a greater depth of fellowship with us than we're giving you right now. So God, I ask in faith that you would do work in all of our hearts right now. God, that we would see the sin that is a barrier to that, that we would recognize that Jesus has already paid for that, but that we would in faith, that we would turn from that, and that we would trust that Jesus will root out all sin in our lives so that we might enter into a deeper and more profound intimacy of fellowship with you. We know you deserve it. We know that our lives are incomplete without it. And we want to give it to you. So we ask that you would help us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.